première intervention par Amanda Schumann, Université de Freiburg. So, thank you so much for uh, inviting me here. What I prepared for today is actually kind of a more general um, sort of uh, discussion about my intellectual journey, then a little bit about how I do my how I do my research. Um, I received my PhD in 2014, at the end of 2014, from the University of California, Santa Cruz. I have a PhD in history with a focus on East Asia and modern China. So uh, I've been trained as a historian primarily. Um, and I consider myself coming first and foremost to this as a historian rather than a China specialist or a, I don't know, a sports training. This is not the kind of training I received. Um, with that said, let me talk a little bit uh, just in general about, about how I do my research. All right, so when I first approached this topic, like many of you, I had, I had sort of a popular knowledge about China and international sport. So what, 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 what do we think of when we think of China and international sport? And these are the topics that first came to my mind. The Olympics, it's always about the Olympics, always has been. This is the way that, it, that, that, that the popular knowledge sort of goes on the topic. There's the two Chinas issue. Lots of people have written about the two Chinas issue. It's sort of obsess, uh, obsessive, I think. The Beijing Olympics, of course. And if you know a little bit about Olympic history, then you know about the 1984 gold medal win uh, 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 of the Chinese volleyball team, um, as well as several other gold medal wins. The 1984 Olympics were this a huge deal in China and also for the uh, Olympic community. So, and especially because this was the first time they competed um, after nearly three decades of not being in the Olympics. So then you, maybe you've heard of state-sponsored sports programs and athletes, and I love this, but Western media always talks about how horrible uh, the training is, you know, and so we see, have these videos of gymnasts, um, like I have a picture here of being, being uh, you know, lengthened by a trainer or, or whatnot or trained. Then we have ping-pong diplomacy. This is another big topic. Everybody loves to talk about ping-pong diplomacy and the opening of China to the world. This is the way you know, um, that it's, it's also spoken about this way in Chinese a lot of the time, too. Then you have wushu, which is martial arts. You have tai chi and all those traditional Chinese sports, as I will call them. So basically, my own personal journey to the topic was I came in knowing this. And so my very first question was in a seminar back in 2006. What did China think of the 1964 Tokyo Olympics? The context was I was studying East Asian history with professors of Japanese and Chinese history. There was a focus on the Cold War in East Asia as one of our seminar topics. And all I knew was the Olympic narrative, the two Chinas issues. So I said, well, what was the Chinese response? The outcome was a lot of research on the games of the new emerging forces that happened in 1963, which were effectively a completely separate Olympic-like movement uh, you know, uh, from coming from Indonesia, uh, sponsored by Indonesia and China. So the, that was my, the outcome of that research. And I primarily did that research based on English language resources, such as China Sports, which can be accessed easy in, easily in any library, and Peking Review, which can actually now be accessed online. And I did a seminar paper. And summer 2007, I came here to Lausanne to take a look at the Olympic archives. Interestingly, I walked in, I asked about this, you know, the, the Jeu de Bien Info, and some, they said, we have no idea. It's, we've seen things about this in our dossiers, and our phone, but we don't have, like, a single phone for it. I think I was the person who, a year later, I returned.
returned in 2008, suddenly there was an entire uh, font about the Jeu de Pianofo. And I think it was my sort of playing around in the archive, and suddenly all these things came together in one place, and I was able to do my research quickly, and because the lovely archives here, they let you take photographs very quickly, which is lovely. So there's also English language resources, um, like I said, China sports, and these are just to give you a sampling of the types of things that are that are in them. This is from the 19, 1959, uh, number five issue, and it's significant because it was the first national games in China, the People's Republic of China, were held in October that year. So that's the significance of that. But from just this sort of sampling, you get sort of these very propagandistic articles about what's happening in China, and then you get, uh, interestingly here, you know, a photograph and a little article about the sorts of international relationships that, that uh, exist between, in this case, footballers. But with that said, what I also discovered in starting this research is that the best sources require significant language skills. You need to be able to fluently read Chinese. And a lot of the research that is that up to this point was written in English about China and international sport was so focused on those popular topics I showed you that the sort of, shall we say, other narratives or alternative narratives did, could not be found in them. And I realized when I started looking at the Chinese sources, what kinds of details were missing. So this is a very simple source here. This is a sports yearbook, a China sports yearbook. Um, the first one was published in 1964 and covered the period 1949 to 1962. And as I wrote here, it includes a chronicle of important events and milestones, a few important documents related to state sports commission, work meetings, decisions, sports programs, uh, copies of the regulations of international sports uh, organizations and federations translated into Chinese, and many details on competitions, delegation visits, and of course the records. Okay, so what I found was really interesting, for example, was when you would turn to, in this case, this is about 1955 swimming at the top there. So what you had in here were details of events and people that only exist right now, technically, uh, in the written record in Chinese. So these, and you can see I've made notes because I was trying to track specific athletes, and um, some of these athletes are still alive, I'll get to that later. But, for example, here we have the Chinese uh, swimming team, uh, they sent a re representative swimming team to the Soviet Union between these particular dates, and they participated twice in competitions in Moscow. This is the names of the athletes, the coaches, the delegation leaders, and the, the competition results. Here, interestingly, this is the second international, um, what was it called, what's the, the World Festivals for Youth and Students that occurred. This is the second event, um, actually it was not, it was the third, fourth event, but by Chinese records, the second one um, that took place in War, uh, Warsaw in 1955 in August. These are all the participating countries, and then this is the representative Chinese team for swimming. So this book, by the way, I didn't take a photograph of it, but it's like 1,200 pages. It's, it's got everything you could possibly want. This is a more interesting one. Uh, this is the Chronicle of Major Events. This is for the year 1954, and I have my lovely sticky notes on there, sorry. It's a quick <laughs> photograph I took the other day. But I put it here to, to just give you a sense of the kinds of things that are missing right now. <laughs> 
when you look at translated sources and that I kept, I kept finding when I would go to my sources. So we have things about state sports commission uh, meetings that were national um, meetings, nationwide meetings. Then we have um, events. Uh, Hulong was the first leader of the state sports commission in China. So he visited the Soviet Union, participated in a sports festival. And then over here we have, you know, more details about uh, this particular uh, group of, pe of um, people. They went to the Soviet Union. In this case, it was National Defense Sports Clubs, which was really a socialist thing, a communist socialist country thing, that also we don't talk about oftentimes in international sport. But the 1950s um, was really the key time for the development of these uh, socialist bloc uh, sports networks. So, and so there were all kinds of competitions. So oftentimes the Chinese team would go to the Soviet Union, and then they'd also travel to Romania, sometimes Poland, somewhere else, uh, you know, Bulgaria or something like that. And then you also have little things like this which are very important to the history of um, sport in China. So we have a sports research institute in Xi'an, and Xi'an is one of the big cities in China. So there's like Chengdu, Beijing, Shanghai, Xi'an's another one. It's near the terracotta soldiers, actually, if you know that. After getting those details, I started to look at what other kinds of sources there were. And what I, what I found was really amazing about this time period in the 1950s and into the 1960s in China was that there, there was a sort of blooming of official, uh, officially produced propaganda and pop culture around sport. And I thought this was really interesting how a lot of times in these kinds of sources there was a blending between, let's say, everyday life and everyday participation in sport, so physical education, but also leisure activities. And at the same time, you would have elite sport. So, for example, this coach at the Shanghai Sports School is sitting here and you have this Olympic poster in the background. And so there's, a, and there was also, like I said, a sports films were a, were a genre uh, that came out, or started, excuse me, started, started to be um, produced in 1956, and then about a dozen were produced uh, until 1966 when the Cultural Revolution started. And again, aside from this one film, the rest are all in Chinese. You can't access them if you don't have the language skills. <laughs> so, all right. So periodicals. They are totally accessible. Um, and most of them, if you know the Chinese title, they can be watched on YouTube. Somebody uploaded them to YouTube. Okay. Um, so they're they're easily accessible. Uh, this is the only one with subtitles in English. I don't even know if the subtitles are on YouTube, though. You might. There is a, a company called Yes Asia that uh, makes DVDs of certain classic movies in China, and this is this is one of the movies that they chose to to do subtitles, English subtitles. But uh, actually, I, I, maybe I can talk a little bit uh, at the end, or if you're interested, I have a publication coming out that's talking about several of these movies. Okay. So then we have periodicals. This was another rich source for me because, like I said, there was this uh, there was a, an officially produced culture that sort of um, bloomed in the 1950s, and so you had sources like this new sport, Xinti uh, Yu, which was a magazine that started to be published. And the articles are, are are interesting. A lot of them are written for clearly like the general public or general audience. They're not written for sports uh, sports coaches or anything like that. But it's but it's a it's a really good source. Um, to, to look at for any of these topics I have down here. So 
debates over athletic techniques, athlete profiles, famous athletes or, or whatnot, also famous athletes from socialist bloc countries were a popular topic in the 1950s. Reports on mass sports activities, so like this school over here is successfully um, following the Soviet-inspired uh, mass sports program called the Ready for Labor and Defense Sports System, those kinds of articles. And then, yeah, non-China-related international sports news, et cetera, et cetera. Here on the right, this is from People's Daily in 1952, which was the last time that China uh, sent a, a delegation to the Olympics until 1984, to the Summer Olympics in 1984. This is in Helsinki. I have this one highlighted because for those of you who know um, a bit about running history, maybe, I'm a runner, I'm a long-distance runner. This is Emil Zabopek. He was, he was uh, like one of the most famous long-distance runners ever, and he made a lot of visits to China, and he was a big star in the socialist bloc. So um, that's just one example of an athlete that they often wrote about or, or, or uh, had pictures of in these kinds of publications. I like this one because you had... When you, have, when you look at the 1950s uh, in these periodicals, there's a lot of these photographs, which uh, you know you don't. If, if you know a little bit about this period of time in the socialist bloc, you can start to guess who the stars are and who the people are. Um, but you have reports and articles on them. The one on the left was the um, the from the 1954 visit of the uh, famous Hungarian football team to China. They spent a lot of time there. Okay. What I started to realize when I was doing this research that I thought was really interesting, and I wrote this below here, but oftentimes you would have an article such as this one, the Hungarian football team visit to, to China, placed next to a general article about um, Hungary's sports movement. So the observation I made was that there was a close tie between the sports delegation visits and the domestic sports programs. So how they were trying to encourage people to get involved in sport in, in their everyday life, and that these articles, like I said, the language is pretty easy. They were written for ordinary citizens. And then the other sort of um, thing I go with that I thought that you know more about in my work is that there is a close tie to China's position in the world. So we can see that it's very interesting that there seems to be like a lesson to be learned here. On the one hand, who are our friends? <laughs> our friends are the Hungarians. And on the other hand, um, the focus is not exclusively on elite athletic sports development, but we have here a description of the, the, the ways in which Hungarians um, participate in mass sport in their schools or in their work units, which were like factories and stuff like that. So archival access. So with all that knowledge, I went to China. <laughs> um, and I did spend a full year basically studying um, Chinese in Taiwan and two summers in Beijing before I was able to get to a level where I felt comfortable actually accessing these sources. Archival access in China is dire. So it's and actually, somebody on the for, for H Sport asked, asked me if I could write like a description of archives that people could go to in China, and I said it's impossible. I mean, what do you want me to write? I mean, I said I have to be honest with you. I don't think the average sports historian can go into an archive in China, and this is where my training in China studies in Chinese really, really comes into play. So generally speaking, you need to have uh, letters, good connections, some luck. And you really need to have solid language skills because, as I'll show you in a second, so this is, first of all, the State Sports Commission archives are totally closed, so forget about it. Susan Burnell couldn't get into them. If Susan Burnell can't get into them, I can't get into them. She's like the top historian of 
China and sport. And she's also friends with a lot of people on the Olympic Committee. So my research is based primarily on the foreign ministry and two municipal archives in Beijing and Shanghai. So what kind of sources did I find in these? First, let me show you this, which you won't understand. This is from the foreign ministry archives. The foreign ministry archives in China, which I think are mostly now closed off again, they've been reclassifying documents the last five years. Um, so this is from 2011, I believe. Uh, but this is this was one of the very few documents that was actually allowed. This is the front cover, sorry. But it was it was one of the few documents or sets of documents I was actually allowed to print out of, of the digitized materials. Basically, all this information at the top here is information about me and who I am. And this in the middle here, uh, this thing right here, this this like paragraph thing is a description of my research because they won't let me see anything that has not, that doesn't have anything to do with my research topic specifically. So I had to give them a, a broad description of what I'm doing, and then I got these documents. However, the documents are really fascinating. So this, so the first document that I have with an asterisk there, are um, comments on issues related to policies of the Gineco, of the Gineco. And then the second one after that is, oh, that's not so interesting, but it's uh, Indonesia requesting us to provide them with sports equipment. So, but you can see that there's a relationship between these two documents just by saying that, since, uh, since Indonesia was the, was the other sponsor of the example. So these types of documents are very interesting because this is, this is the foreign ministry. This isn't the state sports commission. This is the foreign ministry in charge of these. So... So you get a lot of things like telegrams passed pass back and forth. At the lower levels, the municipal archives, you can, at the time, not now, it's another story. At the time, I was able to print a lot of things. So these are documents from Shanghai, and you can see your language skills have to be pretty good. <laughs> and don't ask me what all the handwriting says, because some of it I got, it's too scribbled to read. But these are documents that are related to the drafts of and the implementation of the Lawajo, which is the Ready for Labor and Defense sports system, which is modeled after the Soviet Union, and this is the implementation at the municipal level um, in certain institutes and schools. And this is what the standards looked like to pass uh, the first level, I think, uh, in this case. It's a draft of... I think it's the first level of standards that you need to pass to get a badge in the Ready for Labor and Defense sports system. The other thing I kept coming across in the, in the municipal archives, which is a very interesting thing as a historian, because you, again, you can't access the central level uh, state sports commission archives, right? But these classified reports, so here's a classified report from, that's produced from the local Shanghai Sports Committee. Um, and an activity form of the photo. These sorts of documents tell you really interesting things. So this is actually right the, whatever, the August 1966 visit of the Egyptian gymnastics squad to Shanghai. So I kept running across documents like this, basically reports um, of activities and um, the outcome of delegation visits. So those things that you saw in the chronicle of events in the sports yearbook, this is basically details about all of these events. So here we have a form that's kind of general information. Um, I love the photograph, that's why I put that here. Um, if you know anything about Olympic history, this guy is, what's his name, Tony? 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 Uh, Sean, Sean Tony, yeah. President. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. So and and uh, key player in some of the Ganefo uh, stuff that happened in '64 to '66. And like I said, here on the uh, on the left here, then you have uh, just a report about the visit, which often did not only include, and this is really key for, for me, it did not often just include like they played this many matches, they ate dinner here, whatever, but often would include negotiations that were happening. So people are talking about Ganefo, when the next Ganefo is going to happen, and the Chinese side, because it's a classified report, will sort of start hypothesizing whether or not they believe somebody like Tumi. Oh, I, there's something, you know, I don't, he says that there are financial problems, but I don't think it's political problems, not financial problems, it's civil. Sort of think about these uh, issues. Here's another set, these are, this is, this is the thing that I thought was really also interesting, was that you could find circulars and copies of reports that were sent from the central level to the Shanghai Sports Committee uh, on this particular visit or any visit. And that was how I found all the documents related to the African teams that visited in 1966. I didn't have anything from the central level, but once I got down to the municipal level, they had like copies of, of all these things that were sent. And my understanding as a historian is that the, the Shanghai local committee was supposed to read these and study these and to prepare for their visit. Um, and these are all related to the Egyptian gymnastics squad. And you can see my horrible notes on the side because of my printouts. But uh, this one right here is talking about related to the Ganefo, uh, Ganefo and also talking about uh, uh, well, we're basically discussing how to um, understand friendly, friendly relations with Egypt. Sometimes you get something random like this one. This is an English letter that was stuck in the back of a file that was about the um, Tanzanian football team visit in 1966, which I thought was interesting. It's not uh, perhaps necessarily only showing the Chinese side, but you also have like a little bit of interaction, uh, and you have the letter coming from their delegation later. And I used something like this when I was talking about the supposed building of friendly relations, whether or not we could, we could debate all, all night about whether or not uh, we believe that those were really friendly relations, but the language that's used was clearly meant to, to have this idea be, be sort of um, solidified, I guess, uh, from an official standpoint. So other sources I used when I was doing my research that I found really interesting, and I think these are ones that are more accessible, perhaps with a maybe even like a lower level of, of knowledge of the language, were sub-archival and non-archival sources. So there are newspapers in other languages, like I used when I wrote the one for 19, the African visits to 1966. One of the visits was from the Mali uh, football team, so I used Lesur, which I found in Leiden. Uh, and then I bought things on things, Confuze, this, uh, this is a online flea market site. So like you have Del Camp in Europe, you have Confuze in China, and you can buy anything on there, I swear. So we have here, this is a handbook that was produced in the 1950s about this uh, ready for labor and defense sports system. These are badges that people are selling, probably found in their basement or in their grandparents' basement. And then here, sorry for the quality of the image, but these were like little certificate booklets people received for, uh, for having passed the, the, the standards and received a badge. It was a big deal. Blogs, Sina blogs are just Chinese blogs. Sometimes you, you're able to find things that retirees have written online, which is really interesting. Um, talking about their experience in the 50s and 60s. 
going, uh, having participated in these programs, and these participants would be mass sport participants, not elite athletes. Other sources I found, this is the one with the audio clip, if I can play it, are with former athletes, and I just happened to get really lucky. I happened to get really lucky because uh, the guy on the right here in this photo, he's the one who's 90, I guess he's 91 now, and he lives in Amsterdam, but he was a PRC athlete in the 50s, and he was recruited to, to help build and found the national team in China. Um, he was born and raised in Indonesia, but when he participated with his with his colleague here, Wu Chunying, uh, this athlete on the left, in the um, World Festival for Youth and Students in 1951 in Berlin, he was noticed by the Chinese recruiters and recruited back. <laughs> recruited back is the terminology they use, even though he was born in, in Indonesia. All right, so let me get to my conclusions here. How does all this influence the way we might understand the history of China and international sport, particularly in this Maoist period? So, I think of that as the 1950s, uh, 1950s through 1970s. My focus is on the 50s and 60s primarily. The outcome of all this research is, in fact, what is what was my dissertation is now turned book manuscript because some of the research and the things I showed you have happened since I finished my dissertation, um, and I had a almost year-long fellowship in Leiden, so I was able to work work on the manuscript using some of those African newspapers. Leiden also has a very good um, East Asian library, so they have a lot of Chinese sources that I was able to access. The result, this is a tentative title, it's probably going to just become The Politics of Socialist Sport in Mao's China. <laughs> I'm rethinking the title here, but this is a, uh, a book manuscript that I'm, that I'm working on. So, tentative conclusions I have based on all this research is that, overall, the national body, by which I mean here, both the body politic, so the nation, as well as the bodies of individual citizens, um, and I have uh, a lot more on that I could talk about, is inherently a transnational project. So there are these transnational networks that China is involved in, and these involve not just state, sometimes not just state-to-state -state relations or people who are even natural-born Chinese citizens, but these are actually I don't know what we want to call them, state actors or sub-state actors of people moving between countries. So I have three central themes that I'm working on within that. The central themes are generally, I have one theme where I talk about, yes, this, uh, I don't know how many of you are familiar with the so-called uh, national humiliation narrative in China, but it's this idea that China was humiliated for 100 years at the hands of foreigners between the Opium Wars in the 1840s, and 1949, the establishment of the People's Republic of China. And one of my big arguments is that the reason so much, uh, so much time and effort was spent on sport in the 1950s and the 1960s was precisely because it was about overturning and proving that the Communist Party um, has finally um, gotten rid of this humiliation narrative and the humiliation of China which in Chinese is called Dong Yao Bing Fu, or Sick Man of Asia, or Sick Man of East Asia. So that's one of my, that's one of my central themes. And that's a, that's, a, that's, that's a theme that was inspired by other stuff I could talk about at some point. Okay, so then I have, I've organized it into three parts. This is the last thing I'll say. Organized into three parts of two chapters each. The first part is about institutionalizing TU, which is um, sports and physical culture. Uh, in German has Kultur. It's similar to that. It's not just sport. <laughs> and building the socialist state in the 1950s. 
The second part is about producing the socialist body, and that's where I talk about mass sports programs primarily, and the tie between mass sports to these, these uh, influences coming from the transnational sports networks, and also the socialist bloc influences. And the third part is the part that you mostly know, um, which is on the 1960s, and it's looking at the relationship between, well, basically it's looking at uh, how athletes became diplomats for the, for, for the nation in the 1960s. And that's where I have stuff on the Genefo, and I also have um, the chapters on the African um, sports delegation visits, both from China going to African countries and then Afri African countries, various African countries coming to China. That's it. Thank you for your attention. Deuxième intervenant, Monsieur Stéphane Scholl de l'Université de Siegen. Me too. I, um, I'm, a, I'm a historian. Um, I did my PhD in uh, economic history, I would, uh, I would call it. Um, and then I, uh, I was looking for a new uh, subject for my uh, postdoc. Um, and since I always uh, liked sport history and um, and different uh, approaches uh, there. I, I try to uh, figure out a, a good uh, topic in, in sport history, and then I, I came across this idea of, um, or I, I saw that um, because I'm mostly trained in European uh, history, um, and I, I recognized that there's not so many research about um, European uh, cooperation. Um, in sport. Of course, there's a lot of research about different European countries and their, uh, their national sports uh, histories. Um, there's um, a lot of things also about uh, football in Europe, of course, there also with a lot of transnational um, aspects included. But, um, and also there's some research about the European Union and, um, and their sports activities, but there we have to see that the European Union, um, which is of course today the most prominent uh, actor of European cooperation and Europeanization processes, um, was not active in, uh, in promoting uh, sports um, up to the 1980s or 1990s. So for the period um, after the Second World War to the 1980s, 1990s, uh, apart from Football. We don't have so much uh, research about uh, European um, transnational cooperation. So that's how I came uh, to this um, postdoc project. And of course, here we see some um, examples of today today's uh, European projects and European uh, efforts in uh, promoting or in cooperating in sports matters. Of course, we also have all these European championships in different. Uh, single sports, professional sports, which, which is of course the most uh, popular and, and well known. Um, but we also have like more mass sport activities on European level today, like uh, for example this Be Active European Week of Sport, which is not very well known I think, but uh, still is a project of the European uh, Union uh, today. So I will try to present a little bit the, the bigger frame of, of my postdoc uh, project, which is kind of in, in the middle of uh, developing. 
I, I already published some articles and uh, saw some archives. We'll talk about this uh, later, but I'm still like, in finding a good um, uh, general frame. And what was your PhD about? My PhD was about um, uh, was a discourse analysis of how um, economists and uh, and uh, yeah business um, business associations described or tried to set the boundary between their realm, which is the economic uh, realm, and uh, and uh, and politics, uh, the political. So how they um, try to set the boundary between economy and, uh, and politics. So of course, when we look at, uh, at the European cooperation in sport, uh, already and also in, the, in, the, um, in this period, so from the 1960s to the 1990s, we have of course a lot of different levels of cooperation. As I said, mostly the, well the most uh, well-known is um, the uh, professional uh, sports level and of course in football the uh, UEFA. Um, which was founded in uh, 1954. Um, but um, it is interesting that also in, in many other uh, single sports um, like volleyball or um, basketball, which is a little bit uh, older already, but also athletics uh, after the Second World War, sometimes already before, Second World, uh, before, the, before the Second World War, but um, in the 1950s and 1960s we have a lot of yeah, a, a, a formation of these uh, European uh, associations in different um, uh, sports. And then also, uh, which is interesting, um, we have the, the uh, formal creation of the um, European National Olympic uh, Committees, uh, so the ENOC, um, which is also not very well researched, um, which was founded in 1968, so for the Olympic movement we have also uh, European level, but of course the Olympic movement before the Second World War was more or less European, um, but then this changed after the Second World War, of course, with the decolonization process, and this maybe also uh, led to the formation of this uh, European National Olympic uh, uh, Committees. And then also we have on uh, the bilateral uh, level, a lot of, a lot of uh, contracts and treaties uh, between um, different uh, countries uh, in, in Europe and also the level of uh, sports tourism um, which could be included in, in this perspective of European cooperation. But then again, and this is so the red ones that I focus on, uh, focus on in, in my postdoc um, project, we have other actors which become involved in um, sport policy uh, cooperation on a European level. And this is especially and most prominently um, the um, uh, Council uh, of Europe, um, which has not to be confounded with the European Union institu institutions. So the Council uh, of Europe, the Conseil de l'Europe, which was uh, founded in 1949. Uh, um, and which becomes uh, active in uh, sport matters um, from uh, 1960 on. They overtook some uh, fields of activity from, uh, from another uh, European uh, organization and uh, from 1960 on they had a, uh, a special sports section of it. 
talk about this uh, later. Then um, another European uh, institution um, which develops in the 1960s, more concretely in 1966, is the so-called NGO club, which then in, the in 1990 um, becomes the European non-governmental sport organization, which still exists uh, today. Then, we'll also talk about this more in detail in a minute, um, we have the uh, European Sport Conference, which is very interesting because uh, this one, uh, whereas the uh, uh, Council of Europe and the uh, NGO club is a Western European <coughs> organizations, the European uh, Sport Conference is, from what I know, um, the, uh, the only uh, East East, uh, Eastern Western um, organization of this kind um, where the highest officials of uh, the two blocks uh, in Europe uh, come together and discuss uh, uh, sport policy um, matters. And this, and this organization has uh, become institutionalized uh, in 1973. And then also we have a smaller organization which is the European uh, Sport uh, Youth uh, Conference which is also uh, created at the beginning of the 1970s. So we see that in the 1960s, we, have, we really have um, a, a high period of, of intensified uh, European uh, cooperation. The main question that, uh, that I'm uh, interested in is um, how did this uh, came to be and by what kind of mechanisms and objectives and also what kind of obstacles uh, can be observed in, this, in these um, processes. Yeah, the main uh, hypothesis um, is that um, indeed we can uh, witness, as I will describe more in detail in a minute, uh, we can witness processes of, um, of uh, Europeanization of sport policy uh, from the 1960s onwards, but these processes of Europeanization um, did not consist of, uh, of common and universal uh, European decisions or of, uh, of the development of uh, European uh, sport model um, or, or common sport laws, um, but rather these processes um, were marked by um, intensified communication, exchange, coordinations, um, coordination, um, which uh, sometimes led to, uh, to actions uh, on uh, also on a national level but also sometimes these projects and these all this communication and cooperation efforts led uh, nowhere so um, it's not a, a success story of uh, a, a European sport coming closer and closer together but sometimes it's dead end <laughs> but this is um, part of the characteristics of, of these um, European sport corporations as I um, see it. So, just a little bit uh, more um, organizational uh, details of these, of these different uh, actors and, and levels um, that, I, that I have in, in view. So, um, the, the, the Council of Europe, as I said, um, is created after the Second World War and um, well, they, the, 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 the most important thing for the sport cooperation is these uh, subcommittees that are, um, that are formed for special fields of uh, activities and from 1960 on 
they have this committee for out of school education, um, which has a sports section um, where, which um, is composed of um, of uh, delegates uh, uh, from the uh, from the ministries uh, which are the national ministries which are responsible for sports. So you see that the Council of Europe is a, um, an intergovernmental uh, organization. So you only have uh, government representatives that are meeting there and talking about uh, sport policy matters. And as you know, <coughs> in most of the Western European uh, countries, um, sport is organized most uh, dominant, uh, dominantly by um, non-governmental uh, organizations. So uh, this is part of the, the problem of uh, European sport cooperation within this organization that you have in the Council of Europe, <coughs> in the sports section, you have government officials coming together and you don't have, uh, at this time, you didn't have um, officials from the non-governmental um, organizations. So this led to some mistrust uh, and some um, um, uh, distance from the um, national sport associations when they looked at the projects that developed in the 1960s uh, within the Council uh, of Europe. And this also led to um, the second level within the Council of Europe and finally the, the creation of the Comité Directeur pour le Développement du Sport, from this, uh, uh, this uh, CDDS, the CDDS, in 1977, because their uh, body was created where the national sports organizations, or the non-governmental organizations, were uh, participated in, uh, in this body on an equal level with government officials. So this is the, the Council of Europe, and um, yeah, as I said, it's um, maybe the most uh, dominant uh, or prominent um, actor um, in uh, European sport cooperation in, in, uh, during this period. Um, you have a lot of different projects and activities um, that were going on already in the 1960s, but in the 1960s they were not leading to uh, very to very great uh, uh, success. Um, for example, in the 1960s, there were programs uh, to develop a European um, athletics uh, diploma. So you know that different um, uh, nations and countries had their national uh, uh, athletics diplomas. Also, this mm -hmm. uh, document that you showed for for China. So in Germany, they had the Deutsche Sportabzeichen, and France, they had their own. Uh, sport badge, um, and in the 1960s, the Council of Europe tried to develop a European uh, athletics diploma. At the end of the 1960s, there were some 10,000 people, mostly children, that did this uh, European uh, athletics test, but uh, compared to the national, of course, this was not very uh, relevant. And also, they had other projects. Uh, smaller project, but then in the 1970s um, there are some bigger uh, results of this European cooperation. Um, for example, the Sport for All uh, Charter, European uh, Sport for All Charter, which was they worked on it uh, from the mid 1960s uh, onwards with a lot of 
expert groups and meetings and discussions about how uh, to formulate this uh, charter and finally in uh, 1976 the charter was uh, adopted and it was quite influential in um, helping uh, different countries which at this time uh, did not have uh, sport for all programs so most of the Scandinavian countries uh, already had their trim and fitness um, campaigns uh, with Germany also but for example um, the charter was very influential uh, I think in, in France, uh, in Italy and in other countries um, for developing these, uh, these programs. Also uh, the Council of Europe was one of the first uh, institutions or organizations that uh, were working on uh, um, anti-doping anti uh, measures and um, discussions about how to formulate uh, lists of um, forbidden substances. And they also started this already in the 1960s and finally um, they had a, a European convention against, um, against doping in the 1980s. Another field was uh, violence um, and then um, also um, sport, uh, sport for all. Um, a second charter was adopted for disabled persons. And then in the 1990s, the Council of Europe was very active in, um, after um, the, uh, the fall of the Soviet Union, um, this uh, spring a sport reform innovation and training program in trying to help uh, uh, Eastern European countries uh, to develop democratic uh, sports structures, or democratic in the sense of of the Western European Sport Association. So these are some fields of activities where we can see concrete results of this European uh, sport cooperation. Then um, already uh, said that uh, the, the NGO club developed in, at quite the same time, so in the 1960s, partly in response to these governmental or intergovernmental uh, activities within the Council of Europe. Um, the national sports organizations, uh, so the NGOs of sport in Europe, try to intensify their communication and uh, cooperation, which led to this formation of the quasi-official um, NGO club, which at first um, included um, West, uh, West Germany, uh, Denmark, uh, East Iceland, uh, Norway, um, uh, Switzerland, and uh, the Netherlands. And um, yeah, they, they came regularly together two or three uh, times uh, in a year. And, um, and also they prepared their meetings uh, with the Council of Europe. So they try to discuss in advance when they then uh, went to, uh, to discuss with the Council of Europe or with other um, associations. And then a little, a little bit more uh, uh, details about the, um, the last one, so the third one, um, European uh, Sports Conference, because it was also connected to the Council of Europe and the NGO club, because when the communication between the Western European NGOs uh, intensified in the 1960s and also the uh, relationships with the Council of Europe um, intensified. They quickly saw that it was only Western Europe and that 
it like they elect they elect um, uh, uh, an organization to discuss these sport policy matters, um, which included uh, the Eastern European countries, and um, they developed uh, plans for having uh, a new platform, a new organization, um, which included the socialist bloc, and uh, finally in 1973 um, they held the first European sport conference in, in Vienna, um, and then proceeded uh, every, every two years, and as I said, in this, or during these uh, conferences, really the, the uh, most, um, the highest uh, sport officials from the Western uh, NGOs and the highest officials from the Eastern European state, uh, mostly state departments, uh, came together to discuss uh, sport policy matters, for example, sport for all programs, um, or the, um, the fight against uh, doping, or the problem of uh, spectator violence, and so on. So, um, of course, this uh, this organization was um, very, very associated or, or became highly politicized, um, as you have already said. Um, sport and politics always went to always went together, so you cannot uh, help them. Uh, uh, split, split them, but um, the, uh, also the media coverage of these um, conferences, especially in Germany, the problem between uh, the GDR and, uh, and Western Germany um, was always very yeah, hotly debated. Okay, so why we have these three organizational levels, so why can, why should I uh, should I see them uh, together or try to uh, put them under one, um, one project? There are some uh, overlappings between, between them. First of all, we have uh, overlapping personal uh, overlappings. Um, so we can really see a network of actors involved in this European Sport co Corporation. Uh, it's always the same names in the different Organizations. So, for Switzerland, for example, it's uh, Ferdinand Imisch, which is uh, very, very active in uh, international uh, cooperation and also European cooperation. For France, the most prominent name is uh, Walter Grunewald. Um, but we have to say that uh, France is in most of these organizations not as active as other countries. So, for example, for the European Sport Conference and also for the Council of Europe sport, uh, sport activities, they sometimes um, take some, some distance. How do you explain it? Well, um, I would have, I would, I still have to uh, see uh, French um, archival documents from the uh, French uh, sport organizations to see their, uh, their reasons. Um, but I think they just did not value these um, European uh, efforts and these, uh, these um, discussions on a European level as highly as other, as other countries, as for example uh, Western Germany or Switzerland and also other smaller countries as the Netherlands and Belgium was much more into, into it. As you explain it, it seems uh, a German.
Um, yes, it's, it has some bias because I, uh, up until now, I only uh, visited the um, Council of Europe archives and the archives of the Western um, of the German uh, Sports Federation. So most of my documents up until now are from, from Western Germany. So, but I, I have to add other countries um, and they are. Uh, archives uh, to this, to this uh, perspective. Because the NGO is quite a sphere of influence in Germany, and yes. the same for the European conferences. Two of them are in Germany, another one is in Vienna. So yeah, but yeah, but then again, the other, for example, um, the next ones uh, were in, uh, in Eastern European countries and all over uh, Europe. For example, the initiative for the uh, European Sports Conference came from uh, Sweden. So the Swedish, um, Sweden was also very active um, in, in this uh, European in this, uh, cooperation activities. So, um, but you are right that uh, also because of the difficult situation between um, Eastern Germany and Western Germany, the uh, Western German Sports Association, the Deutsche Sportbund, was very interested in connecting to other Western European countries and to have this uh, uh, kind of sports uh, diplomacy. Post hmm? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, um, but still, other countries were also involved. But we have, but we can see that. From the um, from the meetings and from the uh, from the records, um, we can see that some countries are more active than others, and uh, France and also Great Britain are not as active as uh, other other countries. So um, just this was more the uh, the organizational um, side of, of the project. So my my main um, questions are perhaps. Um, more interesting to know. Um, so what I try to uh, do with these organizations is to ask, um, firstly, um, it's, uh, it's a history of, of knowledge that I want to write or uh, that, is, uh, that is in my interest. And so um, I want to know how in these different, different uh, fields of sport knowledge, I would call it, so um, the knowledge about um, developing sport for all programs, the knowledge of doping, what is doping, how can we fight against doping, how can we cooperate in the fight against doping, why should we cooperate, uh, or in violence, um, or in uh, commercialization, which is another topic which is um, very prominently debated in this, in this period, so how can, uh, what is going on uh, in in, in professional sport and, um, and uh, the commercialization of it, um, how can we handle it? Um, so this is one side of, of, the, of these processes that I'm interested um, in, how this knowledge is developed, produced, and how it is, how is it uh, exchanged between these, these uh, different um, actors. Um, and how it finally, Develops or, uh, or doesn't develop into uh, into concrete uh, sports uh, policies, and then I will try or I want to try to um, 
describe these mechanisms and these uh, dynamics under the perspective of um, the term of uh, Europeanization. So, as I said uh, at the beginning, um, Europeanization first was a, a term coming from um, political science and describes processes of, uh, of we call it the hard uh, standardization of political or legal uh, structures. So, for example, when uh, European law from the European Union uh, is or has to be adopted by national uh, uh, countries, you have um, you have a, a, a Europeanization uh, going on. And for example, in sport, you can uh, uh, quote the example of the, the Bosman uh, ruling, which would be uh, uh, one example of this um, hard Europeanization. But in, in uh, most uh, in recent uh, European studies, um, the, the concept of Europeanization is used a little bit more uh, flexible um, and focuses more on more on the processual on, on the process of uh, of uh, Europeanization. And as I said, not only includes um, um, like uh, uh, legal um, results. Of, of Europeanization, but focus on, on the process in which that what is Europe for different actors um, is, uh, is constructed um, and sometimes uh, uh, realized. So um, I, I put this uh, quote by uh, one German, um, but I could also quote uh, other uh, European studies um, um, researchers of Europeanization, so which and maybe the, the last uh, part is uh, most uh, mostly important. So uh, he says, however, Europeanization is not limited to integrative um, elements such as, as these, but also encompasses parallel processes of delimitation and othering, as well as fragmentation uh, and conflict. So I have to stress that, as I said, uh, it's not always like. Success, a friendly, a harmonic uh, success story, but also um, uh, is composed of um, yeah, conflicts or, or, or problems and efforts that are going nowhere. So here I have some of these um, again, some of these examples. This is this European uh, athletics uh, diploma badge, um, which was developed in the 1960s and which was not very successful because. Almost all the national um, associations said that we don't need it, we have our own national um, athletics diploma and uh, why should we have a European one? Then uh, also in the 1960s um, there was this idea of having a, a certificate of um, European um, physical uh, recreation and sport uh, trainers, so harmonized uh, um, trainer formation uh, and also this was not very successful. <laughs> Um, then uh, there were some um, projects to harmonize um, the sites uh, uh, of sports. For example, this is the uh, so-called uh, Europa Bad, uh, European Bath. Uh, so they, in the Council of Europe, they discussed plans to standardize the uh, construction of uh, sports facilities. Then in the 1980s, again, uh, there was um, efforts to harmonized the uh, physical fitness uh, testing, um, Eurofit, which was in some countries uh, very uh, uh, popular. 
then here again we have this uh, European uh, Sport for All Charter, which was quite influential, um, and this um, anti-doping and um, anti-violence uh, charters. So just to have some examples of these uh, results of European cooperation. Thank you. Troisième intervention par Axel Elias du King's College de Londres. So what I want to do in, in, in this talk is, um, is go through, I'm gonna, it's going to be divided in four stages. The first one's going to be mostly conceptual or just talking about my theoretical framework, the concepts I'm using. The, first, uh, set, the second part will be uh, about the preparation for the Olympic Games. And this is more thinking about uh, the Olympic Games, the 1968 Olympic Games, from a transnational perspective. The, set, the, second, the third part, sorry, well, I'm changing it because that's how I have it in my presentation. The third part um, will deal more with the way, the actual ways it was implemented, how the games were being, uh, implemented by the Mexican government and the actions of the IOC. And then the last section will be sort of my, my ways of exploring the impact on Mexico City citizenry. And this is by looking at the history of emotions. So, um, for those of you, I mean, I, I think you're all, you all know that the, six, the 1968 Olympic Games took place in Mexico, the Summer Olympic Games, from the 12th to the 27th of October. Just, but just as any other mega event, uh, the repercussion goes beyond the days of competition. And, and uh, specifically about the 1968 Olympic Games, there are, there's authors that have written about this, and they have done significant uh, work. Uh, some of them are Joseph Arbino, uh, Clan Keith Brewster, Alan Tomlinson, Kevin B. Witherspoon, and Ariel Rodriguez Curi. And, and what they have mostly recovered is the way that the Mexican government was trying to use the Olympic Games for their state crafting purposes. And this is quite relevant. I mean, the titles of two of the books, uh, Representing the Nation of Keith and Claire Brewster and Beyond the Eyes of the World, sort of give you that idea. It means Mexico was in the spotlight. What, what did Mexico do? That's sort of the question they want to answer. And they, they have similar answers, but they are quite interesting because they look at different archives, the different, different archives, different sources. In my opinion, the author has written more extensively about the 1968 Olympic Games, even though he hasn't published a book, is Ariel Rodriguez Curi, because he looks at the Olympic Games from a different perspective. Uh, different perspective. He looks at it from the, uh, how the right perceived it, how the left perceived it, international politics. So he has some articles here and there about it. And that's sort of the author that I kind of uh, appreciate more his work. Oh, even though like they all contribute greatly to this. Can you spell his name? Rodriguez Curi, uh, K U R I, and Rodriguez R O D R I. Yeah, <laughs> that's it. Anyway, so what I try to do is look at how the citizenry engage with the Olympic Games. This is my main question, which I feel like the authors don't really answer. And this is something that has been done before. Specifically, if we think about the 1968 Olympic Games. Um, these sort of, uh, this had happened uh, with the student movement literature. So uh, the literature on the student movement has recovered this perspective, the history from below, so to speak, and has dealt with the way the protesters dealt with, the, uh, with their own movement, how they, were, how they perceived the repression, because there was, their, their movement is hugely repressed uh, in October, in the 2nd of October 1968, and even before. Uh, so this perspective has already been taken. But what's interesting about these perspectives is that the Olympics are absent from, from the reconstructions. Or, I mean, they are there, but more like, a, like an element. They don't really go into detail. They're quite simplistically 
explained as, well, the government was interested in the Olympics and because the protests were happening, they were repressed. But doesn't really look into the perceptions and the engagement of different sectors in the citizens and the And that's what I'm really interested in. What, what I think is very relevant about the Olympics is because they were present in everyday life. They were all over the place, and, specific, and especially after 1966, they just became... Uh, there was a lot of programs that were trying to prepare Mexico for the Olympics. And this was seen in radio, sh uh, radio and the television, newspapers, architecture, through graphic design, sculpture, public presentations. There was a scenic sculptural route that they, that they created from the Olympic Village to the main stadium, cultural and scientific programs, among many others. My conclusion is that whether accepting these projects uh, or rejecting them, the citizenry is engaging with, the, with them. And that's why it's so important to analyze them. So my research uh, was analyzing the Olympic Games from the perspective of three actors and, and the relation between them. Uh, it was the IOC, the government, and the citizenry. And the citizenry is quite a, uh, well, it, it could be a problematic sort of concept to use, and I'll explain why in a bit. And what I tried to do is what uh, Jacques Revel and Kate Ferris have referred to as playing with scales. So not only look at it from the micro perspective, but also analyze how the macro kind of reflects the micro, micro and versa versa. And this is something that John McAllen has already done with his analysis of rituals, of, of sports mega events as rituals. So he, he's... He was quite interested since the 80s about the microscale and, and the impact and what, how the perceptions of the people were reflecting about the nation and, and beyond that. So what I tend to do is bridge two historiographies. That of uh, the 60s in Mexico, which, um, I mean, there's a lot of scholars that have talked not only about 1968 per se, but as the long 60s, using Arthur Marwick's category, also about uh, the global 60s, now, trying to think about it from a global perspective. So it's linking that movement of protest culture with uh, sports studies, which I think are, I mean, precisely something, a topic that uh, both of you have touched upon, is the, the political impact of sports. So just analyzing the ways it, it could be instrumentalized. So what I'm going to do in, in, in the next section, well, uh, in terms of concepts, uh, the first section is thinking about development. What does the concept of development mean, and what, which are the markers that are used for a country to be considered developed. I mean, developed is more like a recent term, but in, back in the, in the 60s, it was more uh, a uh, first or second, third world country, right? And this, this became, has its own history, has its own history, but yeah, it's just thinking about that. And just looking at the local scale, uh, I found quite relevant the reflections of Pablo Picasso uh, about the public sphere, and that's where I take the concept of the citizenry. And this is something that Jürgen Habermas had already worked with, the concept of the public sphere as, as, as a category of, of public, I guess, uh, engagement. This kind of relates a lot to my reading, what I was reading at the time of the everyday history. And for this, uh, I, I was influenced a lot by uh, Alf Lutke, Michel de Sartre, of course, Tate Ferris, and Sheila Fitzpatrick. And just thinking about the everyday life as, not only as small-scale actors, but also about the performance and performativity. And with this, I'm thinking about Sergio Huarcaya, who's a, he's a, a scholar who looks at the Andes, uh, the Andean region. And he kind of plays with this idea of performance and performativity, uh, performativity thinking, of course, in, in Judith Butler. Uh, but he says that the performance, as a, I guess, is an intentional act to perform something, uh, which is not really what uh, Judith Butler is trying to propose. They're both intertwined. And I think this 
fits well with the idea of what uh, people were trying to do with the 1968 Olympic Games. So, of course, a lot of it had to do with, um, with how people wanted to be seen, and another uh, part was uh, how they were actually thinking that they were just being themselves, uh, so to speak. So, yes, my main argument with all this is that the 19th Olympiad was a significant process in, the Me in Mexican and Olympic history, and was not independent from other social struggles and political negotiations. The 19th Olympiad provides an opportunity to analyze how the citizenry engaged with preparations for an event and Mexico's geopolitical aspirations. Of course, uh, sports is a political arena and an area of contestation that is usually overlooked even in its associations with play. And this is something that I, I guess most of us can relate with. The, uh, now, part one in terms of uh, what I want to discuss in this section is what Mexico tried to do with the Olympic Games. And it's a project that began uh, in 1949 at least the first bid, and it was a group of people led by uh, José de Jesús Flores and Marta Ragomez, they were both members of the IOC, and also by Mexico City's mayor, uh, Ernesto Perruchurto. Those were the people, that, I mean, there were more far, uh, other people involved, but they were the main actors behind the, the first bids for the Olympic Games. These were unsuccessful, um, and what they tried to do is show that Mexico was exceptional. Uh, that it was a nearly developed country with a rich indigenous heritage. And with this, like this is what we were talking about previously, it try, uh, it, in the, since the big book, it was trying to link itself with the Western world through Spain, through its Spanish heritage. Mm -hmm. And you could see that in the route it, t it decided to take for, to, for, for the Olympic torch. Right? The, what they did was that, the, uh, yes, they lit the, the torch in, 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 in Greece, but then they made it go through Genoa, uh, Puerto de Palos, uh, Islas Canarias, sort of uh, resembling this uh, route that Colón had taken in, in 1492. So this was like a clear message of trying to show that uh, Mexico was Western as well. And, and these ideas of Western and development are kind of blurry. It's not like a, a straight line. So you, but, but you can see it since, uh, since the big book. Uh, and this was present. And, I mean, we could speculate about why the bids for 1949 and uh, nine, uh, 1956, well, for the 1956 games and the 1960 games. They didn't bid for the 1964, it was until 1968, uh, until it was successful. Why, if those might have been then successful, and, I mean, if we kind of think about what made the 1968 uh, game successful, we, we could just speculate, I mean, it's just speculate, just playing a little bit. That it was a lack of representation in the IOC, so the IOC members didn't really have the know-how uh, of applying for the Olympic bid, uh, and the developing countries were in a different condition. Uh, there were not as many um, decolonized, I guess, countries which really changed the political scenario of the time. And of course, there was a lack of federal support. Uh, even though the mayor was appointed by the president and therefore it was a federal, um, I guess, enterprise, it didn't have full support from, from the federal government, uh, the previous bid. 1952, 1956-1960. So Mexico wanted to be considered a part uh, as a developed country, and that's how it tried to brand itself to the uh, to the IOC. And I mean, I, I spoke about the big book, which uh, which does that, and about the I, the route it decided to take for the for the I guess for the Olympic torch. And yes, it was trying to show. Uh, I think it's quite interesting, but this gives. Uh, kind of topic for another debate, is how it's trying to 
use its indigenous heritage as, as one of its uniqueness, even though it was not really acknowledging it fully. Uh, so there's a, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of taking a detour here, but uh, one of the protests of the students uh, was that it was just using, um, I guess, a glamorized version of, of, of indigenous groups to promote the country. And they, it, it, he called, they called them like the, the tint Indians, sort of, like kind of preserved and not really recovering the contemporary ones, more the ones of the, of the past. In the end, Mexico was elected in, uh, on 18th October 1963 in Baden-Baden, and it ran against Buenos Aires, Detroit, Lyon, and Mexico, uh, well, and Buenos Aires, Detroit, and Lyon. It's quite interesting that the government was trying to place its bid as a developed country, but if we were to consider the development of, say, Detroit and Lyon, uh, Mexico City wouldn't have stood a chance. Instead, uh, and Buenos Aires is quite interesting, Mexico did win, and it went off one on the first round, which is quite uncommon for IOC elections. What is interesting is that, well, according to Avery Brundage, uh, after the elections, when he was uh, interviewed, he said that it was going to set an example for other small scale, smaller scale countries, and this is a direct quote. So he was not really, I guess in a way, not really saying that Mexico was awarded the game because of its development, more because it would set an example and help to promote Olympism. It's interesting here that Argentina, which was in a similar position as Mexico, just received two votes, which is very, I mean, it's a very vote count for, for Argentina. And that's, uh, that's a topic that also would, would be interesting to look at, is how Argentina was branding itself. Uh, when I was in the archives, I really, really didn't find the bid book, but it would be interesting to go back and see if it's there, just to see how, what happened with Argentina. And, and if it, because I guess this would sort of uh, be supporting evidence for my claim that Mexico used its place as a developing country to, uh, I guess, be chosen as, the, as a host destination. And I'm saying this because I, uh, in my review of the archives, I found that the Ganefa were, were precisely an important part of Mexico's kind of strategy. I mean, not implicitly, not, not explicitly, it wasn't like intentional. It's more that it, there happened to, uh, I mean, first uh, Ganefa were going to take place in November 1963, and the elections for the host destination were October 1963. Mm -hmm. Right, so, and as you all know, the Ganefa were this challenge to old structures, and one of them being the IOC. So, I mean, we could, we could understand that one of the actions of IOC members was choosing Mexico as a balancing sort of uh, the role of, I guess, the emerging forces, mm -hmm. right? So it was a way to balance it. So that's why I think it'd be interesting to look at Argentina and see if they're trying to brand themselves as, as developing, or how they were doing it, because it, it could just provide more support to this idea. And Antigua. Yeah, maybe there were Antigua. Uh, uh, Argentina were? No, the Mexico choice. The Mexico choice? Yeah, uh, like, um, it, this is why I thought their strategy was so interesting. What they did at the beginning when they received the invitation, uh, what the Secretary of Foreign Affairs did, said, uh, Mexican Olympic Committee, you deal with this. And then, like, a few weeks later, they said, like, wait, 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 just uh, don't make a decision so quick. You have to be serious. Like, this is, has a huge repercussion. And at first, the first response was, we're not taking part because we, you just let us know with little time in advance. So we're not sending anyone. And this was sort of, like, to not jeopardize their chances of, of running, because they were running for the Olympics in the end. But what they did in the end was uh, they did send athletes, but they sent professional athletes. 
So this was a way to balance things because they knew that by sending professional athletes, they were not going to jeopardize their their chances of, uh, well, I guess, challenging the IOC while they were also pleasing the emerging forces. So this was sort of the the way that the Mexican government uh, did to try to use both worlds. Uh, now Ariel Rodriguez Guri does uh, an estimation of the boats, which I'm not sure how well he can do it, and uh, like what sources he used for this. Um, he said he took a lot of sources from the, the archive here, um, and he does kind of speculate about the boats that went from Latin America to Mexico, and I mean he does kind of build a case for this. So it kind of makes sense, but it's something that I haven't really demonstrated by, with my own research. So that, that takes us to the second part. Once, uh, well, yes, of course, uh, this, uh, the Bandung um, conference was significant in, in the way that the non-aligned movement was being created and then the, the emerging forces. And just an example of one of the things that Mexico was trying to set aside from. And that's an example of 10 countries in Latin America. I mean, this is quite simplistic, but they most of them had at least a biggest uh, countries in Latin America had a, a dictatorship at some point. And Mexico was trying to say, like, we're political stable, we have economic growth since 1940, we're not like uh, Latin America. Even though that's questionable. Uh, there's literature now that speaks about a soft dictatorship, a dicta blanda, uh, like dictadura, like soft, and it's a play, play of words. Uh, or some have spoken about it as violence as the other half of the centaur, something that is not seen, but that was used to implement uh, like a certain type of politics and had a repercussion on, 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 on the country. So now, uh, going to the, to the second part, uh, in terms of um, themes, it's preparing Mexico for the Olympic Games. And this happened since 1963, and even before. At first there was the invitation committee uh, comprised by people like Marta Regomez and José de Jesús Clark Flores, who were trying to promote uh, Mexico as developed. But then, when Mexico was elected, it continued. And this uh, was seen in tourism campaigns, in, in, the, in the architecture that was being chosen around the city, in cultural programs, uh, and even behavioral campaigns. This was all to prepare Mexico for the Olympics. Um, slogans such as, before the eyes of the world, where everything is possible in peace, were repeated constantly uh, in a lot of different mediums. Uh, I think it's quite interesting to think about the newspapers because they were controlled by the Mexican government through a paper supply. There was a company called Pizza, they controlled the paper, so the, if a newspaper was publishing something that they didn't like, they would cut their paper supply and they didn't have a chance of running their newspaper. So that was a way of controlling. So that was the way it was being done. So sort of the positive aspects related to the Olympics uh, were present since 1963 and continued in 1966. Uh, one of the things that they tried to brand was say that Mexico wasn't going to spend as much as, J as Japan, who uh, for the 1964 Olympic Games they spent a huge amount of money. I mean, comparatively, uh, they spent almost as much as China did now in the in the 2008 Olympic Games, which is a lot. So Mexico wasn't going to be able to compete with that. Not even with what Italy uh, invested in the 1960 Olympics, and they were just, uh, I guess, uh, recovering after the Second World War. So what they tried to do is that is say that they were going to be cheap Olympics, but that the main quality was going to be the friendliness and hospitality of Mexicans. And this was repeated uh, for a long time. I mean, you, you guys know the typography, well, like the fonts of Mexico 68, which was one of the huge elements that, were, that Mexico used, and also its, uh, its graphic design as a way to show people around. It was more like a visual 
a visual, a visual culture. It was trying to create a visual culture of Mexico and, and related to modernity. And I was thinking about this, and I, I thought about the counter-reform in terms of, uh, I mean, back in, in the 16th century, how it tried to be something that appealed to the senses and to the emotions. And I, I think this, I mean, it's, it's a big comparison. But it was something similar what uh, Pedro Ramirez Vasquez had in mind. Pedro Ramirez Vasquez was the chairman of the, the last chairman of the organizing committee from 1966 to 1968. And that's what he tried to do with all his, uh, his, his campaigns, trying to promote Mexico as modern and providing an element to, to see that. The exhibit now in the Olympic Museum is about pictograms, hmm. first used in Japan in 1964, right. and then reusing every house city but different ones. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's quite interesting, and I won't have time to see it. <laughs> anyway. Those that agreed with these sort of campaigns uh, sort of uh, accepted this idea of uh, Mexico being a, a friendly and hospitable country. And, and they considered that that was what gave Mexico its, its exceptionality. But then it's quite interesting what happened after the student movement because that visibilized other forms of uh, expression that not only related to this happiness and hospitality of Mexicans, but they were showing a different side of it. What was happening is that it was trying to run the, the IOC was trying to run the, the Olympic Games as they had always thought of. Well, not always, but like after the Second World War, trying to erase political demonstrations. So they were trying to keep it free from politics. And at the time, during the 60s, uh, Brundage uh, constantly spoke about uh, the Olympics as an oasis. And, and they were going to be an oasis in an overcharging heated world. Uh, uh, those are his words. And so he, he referenced this uh, frequently. What happened during the 19th, specifically related to Mexico, th this was applied in different ways. With the South African, I guess, debate was one of them. But specifically for Mexico and the student movement that began in July, was uh, not speaking about these uh, aspects. Uh, not just to minimize the protest and just whenever he spoke about the Olympics or he was asked about the student protest, he would say that he was hoping that students would consider the Olympics and kind of like almost the healing properties of the Olympics and would let them just continue. Uh, and this did happen until a certain extent. Let's just go with the, with the third section, which is speaking about emotional communities and the formation of transnational solidarities. And this has to do a lot with the student movement. And uh, I came across this body of literature when I was thinking about the student movement and, and, and the challenge it presented to the government and also to the IOC. Uh, the student movement uh, in Mexico began in, at the end of July, and it was against repression. So it began as a demonstration. Some students were repressed uh, by the police. Uh, other students weren't happy about it. They took to the streets. Repression continued, and then it escalated to the point where almost 500,000 people took to the streets in two different uh, demonstrations. Uh, so this visibilized resistance against the Olympic Games. These are, uh, yeah, you can see the two images. They're both using, reappropriating the graphics of the Olympics uh, to just communicate. And this, one of them is saying, Mexico 68, year of the repression. And the other one is uh, speaking about liberty of, uh, uh, of expression, freedom of expression, and then with the 68 logo. So the, the, the formal list of demands didn't speak about the Olympics at all. And actually, in their, in, their, in their press communiques, in their flyers, because there was a National Student Council, Consejo Nacional de Huelga, 
It's the National Strike Council. That was the organized body of students. They, they constantly said, we, we're not going to disrupt the Olympics. I mean, the Olympics, for some reason, they internalized this idea that the Olympics had to just remain free of politics, and they, wanted, they thought that it was in Mexico's best interest not to have any demonstrations. So they did sort of internalize that. But in these sort of images, they were showing some connection to the Olympics, at least visually, or at least they're relating to this graphic campaign that the government was trying to promote. And I use Barbara Rosenbein's concept of emotional communities to look at how certain groups gathered around the expressions of collective emotions as a political tool. Rosenbein defines uh, emotional communities as social groups that adhere to the same valuations of smoke of emotions and how they should be expressed. And, I mean, this is quite interesting, and she's not the only author who's speak, spoken about um, how emotions could bring people together. But, I mean, there's William Reddy, who's uh, used this concept of emotional regimes. Uh, Peter Stearns, who's spoken about um, emotionology. And, but I thought that Rosenbein's concept of emotional communities, and Sarah Ahmed's, uh, she also looks at emotions, kind of frameworks fit quite well with what I was looking at. Ahmed uh, considers that emotions stick to bodies and render visible the ordinary and the normative. And it, it, resonated, it resonated a lot with what I found in the archives. Because those who, who didn't feel affinity with the statecrafting of Mexico presented other emotions, and that sort of changed the way they transited the Olympic city. Those who kind of embraced the government were able to transit freely through the Olympic venues, uh, through those spaces that had, yeah, well, through the Olympic venues and the Olympic zones, while those that opposed it presented, uh, tried, well, communicated anger or dissatisfaction, they limited themselves, but also were limited by the spaces. The IOC wouldn't allow that, and the government wouldn't allow that. So it was sort of forbidden to express those sort of emotions because it was seen as a political act, um, and well, whereas happiness was more seen as a neutral act. Yeah, even though like, there wasn't any reason for showing that. I mean, there was, but uh, it didn't really matter what the reasons that, that were causing it. The, the repression increased drastically after the State of Nation Address on 1st of September, and Gustavo Díaz Ordaz, the president of Mexico, said he had the authority to use the police if necessary, and it, he actually did. On the third week of September, the main university camp I, that were being held by students were, uh, the, he ordered the army to just take them out, and that, this was very violent. And it happened again, and most, uh, this is most well known, on 2nd October. Uh, there was a demonstration at a plaza, at Plaza de Patelolco, in, in Mexico City. They, they ordered, a, a, I, well, no one really knows for sure, but there was, they started shooting students, and started shooting uh, the army as well. And around 1,000 people were imprisoned. The official figures are, is, are that uh, around 30 people were killed, although I guess the estimates now are around 100, uh, which are quite high. Yes, this really changed the way students were engaging with, um, with, with their protests. And this is what Ahmed claims that fear works to align bodily and social space. It works to enable some bodies to inhabit and move in public space through restric restricting the mobility of other bodies to spaces that are enclosed and contained. So I think I'm running out of time, so I will go in, like, into the details. I, I brought some testimonies just to speak about how the interviewees were speaking about um, uh, this fear of protesting and what it meant. And just a brief, uh, a last note about the creation of transnational solidarities. Um, and this was 
seeing through the, I mean, not only through what Tommy Smith, John Carlos, and Peter Norman did at the, at the, at the medal ceremony, it was also what Vera Cheslavska did. Like some of my interviews spoke about her, like being her, like her head when they played their, the USSR, the anthem of the USSR. I think it was the Czech anthem. I don't remember when they timed first, but it was a protest and. It was this creation of an emotional community. I mean, the people, the students that had been repressed, they did not take to the streets during the Olympics. They were relating to, to what happened in the, at the sports ground. And they were saying that it gave them hope. Because there was a, they, they showed that politics was possible. That it was possible to, to demonstrate something during the Olympics. And, and, and not only let this sort of uninterrupted Olympics take place. So, I think I'm going to leave it here for now and just... To, I think it will be better if, uh, if there are any questions, I'll just deal with them. Thank you.